Welcome to Ideas Matter, where we explore the ideas and intellectual trends that have shaped where we are today. In June 2020, the Battle of Ideas charity hosted its annual summer school, The Academy, which this year was an online event featuring a series of lectures and book discussions exploring the theme Psychology and Democracy. In this podcast, we feature the introductory talk to a discussion on the 1948 novel Walden II, written by B.F. Skinner, an American psychologist and also author, inventor and social philosopher who liked to describe his own philosophy as radical behaviourism. Walden II, Skinner's utopian, or for many people dystopian novel, has gained renewed attention recently, not least reflecting current interest in social psychology and behavioural science at a time of pandemic, and when many are keen to understand the factors that shape our decisions and our actions and what that means for society. For example, to what extent is our behaviour conditioned or manipulated by other people, or policymakers, or institutions? Or alternatively, to what extent does free will exist and are we conscious agents who determine our own actions in ways that override attempts to nudge us into particular behavioural outcomes? To explore these questions and much, much more, our lecturer is Dr Helena Goldberg, a lecturer in psychology at The Open University and author of two books, Reclaiming Childhood, Freedom and Play in an Age of Fear and Just Another Ape, a work that explores what makes humans distinctive. Okay, so cards on the table, first of all. I think Walden 2 is an absolutely dreadful book. The dialogue is excruciatingly awful, I think, absolutely dire. The ideas are mundane, dollar stitch water, and the characters are all one-dimensional, completely uninteresting, uh, which actually I think is quite apt because it sort of sums up what the society uh, Walden II would be like. And the world that Skinner sees as a utopia, because he sees Walden II as a utopia, to me and very many people would be a dystopia. So it's a world that is soulless, it's lacking in freedom and spontaneity, it's lacking in agency, individual human agency, it's lacking in moral autonomy, In the world that Skinner wants, there could be no intimacy, no true intimacy um, or loyalty. And it's a world lacking in meaning. So it's a sanitized, dull world. And similarly, I think Brave New World in uh, 1984 present um, some similarities in terms of the world of um, utter conformity, where the human spirit is broken in Huxley's book and in uh, Orwell's book and freedom is squashed. But Huxley and Orwell saw this as something to be dreaded, and Skinner saw it as something positive. Apparently with his students, he put both Brave New World and his own book on the reading list. Whether he actually thought that Huxley saw it as this world as something positive like he did or not, I'm not sure. But in Walden II, um, Skinner boasts that uh, through the protagonist, Frazier, that no history will be taught. Now, to me, this is really, really telling because I think you cannot have civilization without an appreciation of history and some grounding in tradition. You you cannot have human aspirations, a belief in progress, a sense of belonging, or find meaning if there's not a rejection of history. 
And I think there's a really beautiful quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson, who wrote an essay on what is history. And he was a good friend of Henry David Thoreau's. And Henry David Thoreau wrote Walden, which Walden too was inspired by. I'm going to say something about that uh, later. But there's a lovely quote where he says, there is one mind common to all individual men. Every man is an inlet to the same and to all the same. He that is once admitted to the right of reasons, reason is made a freeman of the whole estate. What Plato has thought, he may think. What a saint has felt, he may feel. What at any time was befallen any man, he can understand. Who has access to the universal mind is party to all that is and can be done. For this is the only sovereign agent. Man is explicable by nothing less than all his history. Ralph Waldo Emerson was writing in the mid-19th century at the same time as Henry David uh, Thoreau. But in Walden too, there is no history. So, you know, to me, the individuals as part of this community would be utterly unanchored in the way that um, Lash describes in the culture of narcissism. Neither is there any politics in Walden too. And here I think Aristotle's claim that a man that does not live in a polis is not human. A man without politics is not human. A man without politics is either above humans or below humans. So in other words, a man without politics is either a god, because they didn't need politics, or a beast. So what I want to look at in the 15 uh, odd minutes I've got left is what's Skinner's influences and who he was in, who he was influenced by, some background to behaviorism. I don't know how familiar you are with behaviorism, some limitations of the research, and then drawing out the main points of Walden too. So on Skinner and his influences, although Skinner's ideas were, were extremely influential in psychology for much of the 20th century, his book that was written, uh, as Alistair said, 1948, um, initially only sold about 700 copies a year. And, but by the 1970s, it was selling about a quarter of a million a year. And the reason for the title Walden is because it builds on Henry Thoreau's 1854 novel, Walden, which I thought I'd better read in advance of this. According to Skinner, Walden uh, is a utopia for one. And... So, yeah, Walden's, Thoreau's Walden is a utopia for one. Skinner's uh, book is uh, Walden 2, it's a utopia for a community. I think from what I remember, it's a thousand, he was saying, the maximum. Thoreau wrote about the utopia you find through escaping into the wilderness and through self-reflection, through reading, and particularly he emphasised reading the classics, reading ancient Greeks and appreciating the beauty of uh, nature. And it's a much, much more interesting book, a lot better written, some beautiful descriptions of nature there. But I would disagree with Thoreau's message as well. But if anybody put a gun to my head and said, where would you want to live, Walden or Walden 2? I would choose Walden, even though you'd be living you know, in sort of splendid isolation, although you had some contact uh, with people. But you would at least then recognise the importance of drawing upon ideas from history, which Thoreau uh, recognised. And it would, to me, would be far better than living in a stultifying world where hu human beings basically are treated like sheep. And uh, according to Skinner, you know, 
They therefore behave like sheep and he thinks it's a good thing. So what is behaviorism? Uh, B.S. Skinner was influenced by Pavlov, who put forward the idea of classical conditioning. So what Pavlov showed was that if you take an unconditioned stimulus, the bell, and you pair that with a conditioned stimulus, which is the smell of meat, then you get an unconditioned uh, a conditioned response, sorry, which is salivation. So the pairing of two stimuli results in a response. B.F. Skinner's conditioning is, is not referred to as classical conditioning. It's often referred to operant conditioning or instrumental conditioning. And what he argued instead is that organisms act upon the world. And, and the way in which they act upon the world will be very much shaped by evolution. So you act upon the world, but learning takes place on the basis of whether, once you act upon the world, whether that's positively or negatively reinforced. And these, this simple rule shapes all of uh, human behavior, according to um, Skinner. Now, he has provided some, some interesting insights into how animals learn and can be trained. But I would argue even this is not that revolutionary because people who for centuries have worked in circuses have uh, learned that animals can be trained to do quite ingenious things through reward and punishment. So that was not that new. Can it explain, can conditioning or behaviorism uh, explain human behavior? I would say some aspects, yes. So if you take classical conditioning, anybody who's been a smoker may find, if you are used to say, when you're out for a drink, having a cigarette, and that's when you really enjoy the cigarettes. You have two stimuli, two together, alcohol, cigarette. If you then stop smoking, you then have the alcohol, you get a burning urge to have a cigarette and it becomes very difficult not to have one. And that's, that's an unconscious process that has an impact on us. So yes, it can explain something. I think it can explain some phobias and dislikes. For instance, for a while, I couldn't smell red wine without feeling nauseous. And that was because one uh, afternoon I was on holiday with my dad and um, I, I said I wasn't feeling quite right. And he said, have a glass of wine, that'll perk you up. It was often his, his medicine for um, any, any ailments. And within an hour, I was violently sick. Now, not because of the wine, I had contracted norovirus. But in that, that association then of red wine and nausea then stopped with me, which meant that I couldn't smell red wine without feeling nauseous for a long time. So some behaviours it can explain. Anybody who's had small children who's used star charts know that they can be quite useful at times to get rid of unwanted behaviours and to encourage uh, particular behaviours. But as children get older, they, they become far more difficult to manipulate. It becomes far more difficult to manipulate children. And for instance, you know, these reward and punishment is something that's often tried in prisons with uh, limited success because you, we become quite adept at manipulating these kinds of things. But I would, and this, I'm, this did come up in this morning's discussion, I would say that it is possible to manipulate human beings to some extent possibly through uh, reward and punishment, but it's really limited. And, and particularly because we are conscious agents who can choose to stop and think and reflect on how we're being manipulated. So I know that when I go shopping, I'm manipulated, but I don't care. But if I did care, then I would have the, or, uh, you know, the capacity to sort of stop and uh, reflect on this. 
so yes it, some aspects it can explain but it's it, it's limited on the limitations of the research skinner's research is incredibly limited all of his research was done on rats uh, looking at how they find food in mazes or pigeons um it, i say it's limited it's limited in understanding human beings but his experiments were actually really quite ingenious. And if anybody wants to look at any of them, you can see them on YouTube. He could teach uh, pigeons to play ping pong, play keyboards, uh, uh, such like. But it's incredibly limited because it tells us almost nothing about human beings. But there is still research being done within psychology on conditioning. And one of the areas is evaluative conditioning. So that involves manipulating people's attitudes to certain stimuli. So for instance, you might um, manipulate attitudes to high sugar content food or high fat content food. And so, you know, these lab experiments might then pair up pictures of high con uh, sugar content food with an ugly picture of a big fat belly. And from that, they've found that they've been able to some extent manipulate implicit attitudes to particular foodstuffs, which they then measure through surveys and such like after. But also, to, uh, to some extent, they manipulate actual choices as well around food. So in one of the experiments at the end, after their attitude to particular foods had been manipulated, the uh, participants were given the choice saying, oh, a reward for taking part in the experiment. You can choose a little basket with fruit in it, or you can choose a little basket with um, sweets in it. And more people, no more participants in the experimental group chose the little basket with fruit in it than uh, sweets, uh, more in the experimental group than in the control group. But what I would say from this is that all we know from this is that manipulating people's attitudes to particular things, stimuli, can have some short-term effect maybe on your attitude and maybe even on choices but none of these experiments tell us whether these uh, changes are lasting There's very little evidence of that and also that you know there's so much research going on in psychology now that shows that um, the relationship between our attitudes and our behavior are actually a lot more complex than previously thought so you know there are many things that we might our attitude might be that we see it as something negative bad for your health, uh, smelly, dirty, like smoking. I don't think very many see it as really cool and gl glamorous anymore. But so there's lots of negative connotations, but we still uh, do that. So it's a lot more complex, that relationship between attitudes and behavior. Also, these studies have very low e ecological validity in the sense that the way people behave in a experimental lab, artificial, highly controlled setting will be very different from the way we behave in the real world where there are so many other uh, influences. Now on psychology, there's a real obsession in psychology in, in uh, presenting psychology as a science. And B.F. Skinner argued that psychology is only a science if it measures things that are observable. Now this is not unique to behaviorists or to Skinner. The emphasis on uh, measuring things that are observable in order to get an insight into the human mind is very much wanting to put psychology on a scientific footing and very much a reaction against Freud. 
So you can only measure the mind or get any insight into the mind by looking at behavior. Now, I do think it is true that you can actually get lots of insights into the human mind by looking at behavior. And Piaget could tell us a lot about children's minds through looking indirectly at behavior. But Skinner went a lot further than this because what he argued is not just that the mind is not observable. He says the mind is an illusion. Free will is an illusion. We don't have uh, free will. The only thing that we should be interested in is behavior and behavior is shaped by reinforcement. It is not shaped by the mind. So I think it was Alistair who said he's a radical behavior. Somebody said he's a radical behavior. So he is. I mean, he's the extreme end of behaviorism, utterly deterministic. But for most of the, for much of the um, 20th century, he was one of the most eminent uh, psychologists. Although today, I would say very few psychologists would call themselves behaviorists. And there is a recognition within psychology that behavior is a lot more complex than Skinner made out. And I do think it's important to um, differentiate between the psychology that makes its way into uh, policy circles and research that's going on within psychology, because there is actually a lot of um, quite interesting research going on within psychology. So... The main points of Walden too. Key is behavioural control. So what Skinner's basically saying is not that he's proposing a world in which human beings are controlled. That's not the unique about Walden too, because we are controlled anyway. We are controlled by priests, by advertising, by demagogues. So we're already controlled by our environment. But the aim of Walden too is to have the good guys, you know, setting the rules and ensuring that we're controlled positively rather than negatively in order to achieve health and well-being. But, you know, when you read the book, his ideas about how to change behaviour are just so, it's embarrassing. They're just so utterly uninspiring. So he says, you know, we're meant to get really excited about the shift work for cooking, eating and cleaning. And Fraser, the protagonist, says... An amazing piece of cultural engineering, the staggered schedule. The effect is almost unbelievable. We need less equipment of all sorts. Bathrooms, for example. If you, haven't, if you have ever stayed at a summer hotel which didn't have uh, private baths, you remember the shaving hour and dinner hour rushes. With a staggered schedule, we get along with limited installations quite conveniently. Wow. I mean, how exciting about, you know, a top- utopian world. Don't have to queue for the bathroom. There will be no politics or democracy that's really emphasised in Walden too. So individuals should be entirely subordinated to the rules of community. And he says an important theme of Walden too is that political action is to be avoided. In other words, there should be no dialogue, debate, involvement by the community at large in decisions about how their society uh, should be run. And Fraser says, of course, they have some, can have some input. So as to disagreements, it says Fraser, the protagonist, anyone who examines the evidence upon which the rule was introduced into the code, he may argue against its inclusion and may present his own evidence. If the managers refuse to change the rule, he may appeal to the planners, but in no case must he argue about the code with members at large. There's a rule against that. So no debate, but if you're not happy with the code, you can sort of scientifically put your case to the controller or the planner or whatever they're called, and it can be um, considered, but without any community debate around it. And he boasts about this. 
Maximizing health is key to Walden too. And this sort of absolute focus on health, I think is reading it, you know, during the coronavirus crisis is, is a little bit unsettling. So it's very sterile uh, life that he um, proposes here. And some of the practices that he promotes for keeping individuals and community free from disease is minimizing crowds, isolating infants, so you re reduce the spread of infection. And then there's all this emphasis on, you know, strengthening the immune system through physical exercise and nutritious meals. So the emphasis very much is on individuals who are content and healthy. Reminds me very much of Brave New World. There's no education. Um, he, uh, so since our children remain happy, energetic, curious, we don't need to teach subjects at all, he says. We teach only the technique, techniques of learning and thinking, which may sound familiar to some of you. The other thing is the elimination of negative emotions. And this is where I would argue, therefore, if the aim is to eliminate negative emotions, you cannot have intimacy. Because intimacy means, you know, taking risk uh, with emotions. One of his uh, aspirations is to get rid of emotions such as jealousy, anger, anger and fear. So only the good, productive and strengthening emotions such as, as joy and love. But I would argue you can have love. If, you, if you're only going to have positive emotions, you know, you're not going to have love because the whole process of developing intimacy will does always involve a range of human emotions. So I think Shakespeare shown us quite clearly. But yes, he's, his emphasis is entirely on just uh, positive uh, emotions. It sort of adds to the soullessness, I think, of, of Walden too. Undermining the family is another thing, and this seems to come up in a lot of sort of utopian uh, novels. Plato admired Sparta with its getting rid of the family as well. So even marriage and love will be an outcome of behavioral science, he says. So he says, Fraser again, then let me add a scientific touch. When a young couple become engaged, they go to our manager of marriages, their interests, school records and health are examined. If there's any uh, great discrepancy in their intellectual ability or their temperament, then they're advised against marrying. So the, the marriage love has to become then a scientific process. And he, parenting, he wants to get rid of parents as well. And he says that wonderful things can be done in the first years of life, but we leave them to people whose mistakes range all the way from child abuse to overprotection and lavishing the infection on wrong behavior, which I suppose relates to Frank's point about the emphasis becomes in the utopia on, on molding and shaping children um, from an early age. And interestingly, in Sparta as well, the family um, unit was undermined. Lots of emphasis on breaking any any loyalty other than um, to fellow fighters. So the elders decided which infants could live and which infants uh, should be left to die. That was not the uh, decision of parents. Males, even once we were married, would spend far more time in the uh, uh, barracks with, uh, with their fellow uh, fighters and would eat with them, not with the family. And the aim was really to destroy any source of loyalty to anybody other than their fellow fighters. And the entire reason for um, Spartans was as fighters. That's what they were trained up to be. But yet at the same time, 
they, they uh, very often tried to avoid fighting because they did not want to leave Sparta to go and fight in different parts of the world because they were in constant fear of an uprising from, their, from the helots, from the slaves. Slave. So to me, everything I've learned about ancient Greece, Sparta is not in any way an inspiring polis. There's nothing inspiring about Sparta. But so much of, of, of Walden too reminded me of Sparta, with a really Spartan way of life. Uh, he, they, he you know, emphasizes that we need few belongings. He's against consumerism, the undermining of the family, the utter conformity, obedience, minimal dialogue and uh, debate and minimal education. So the Spartans didn't get an education either, apart from physical education. So in conclusion, I think there's little evidence that much of human behavior is shaped by conditioning. It can explain some aspects of our behavior, but the way we learn is qualitatively different from animals. And for those of you not read Just, Just Another Eight, my book, I go, go through how different human learning is from animal learning just to get a little plug in. Um, a world organized by behavioral science, secondly, I would say, uh, where democracy is removed and behavioral outcomes are manipulated is a really cold, sanitized, uninspiring world where I think human beings become passive and dull in a world where they are not expected to make any choices or exercise any judgment. And I think if you compare this to community, uh, or, or not the community, but the polis of um, Athens under Pericles, where you're active citizenship, where, you know, everybody was, not everybody, but everybody could be involved in the assemblies. Up to 40,000 citizens could take part in the assemblies, and at least 6,000 would regularly, because that's what they needed for them to be quiet, would take part in these uh, assemblies. Many of them would be then selected to sit for one year on the Council of 500 to where they'd have to take part in drafting legislation. They would take part in the juries of 501 where there would be no judges, no expert directing the procedures. They would hold public offices by uh, lot. So here you have people who were forced to make important decisions, take themselves seriously, take education seriously, and that active citizenship is just a world apart from the dull conformity that we would get under Skinner. And very finally, it's a really negative, pessimistic view of human beings who you know, can be so easily manipulated and their spirit broken and freedom squashed. Skinner sees this as a really uh, good thing. And I would say, in some way, although Huxley sees this as a bad thing, his is a dystopia, I, I would also say that he similarly has quite a negative view of human beings because he thinks, or it seems through Brave New World anyway, that he thinks that actually human beings can be manipulated through consumerism and through technology. Whilst I'm with Orwell, very final point, 1984, where he also shows the human spirit is broken, but he shows it's bloody hard to break the human spirit. You've been listening to Dr. Helena Gouldberg give the introductory talk to a book club discussion of B.F. Skinner's novel Walden 2. The talk was part of the Academy 2020, which explored the theme Psychology and Democracy. We'll be featuring all of the lectures from that event here on Ideas Matter podcast. So to make sure that you don't miss out, then please do subscribe through your usual podcast channels.
To find out more about the work of Battle of Ideas Educational and Citizenship Charity, then please head to our website, theboi.co.uk, where you'll be able to find out more details about the Academy and also Debating Matters, our school's debating championships, and Living Freedom, our residential school for under-25s keen to explore and debate historical and contemporary ideas related to freedom. Finally, if you appreciate our work promoting engagement with the world of ideas and creating practical forums for discussion and debate, and if you can manage a donation to support us, then we'd be most grateful. Please do visit our website, battleofideas.co.uk, and click on the donate button. Thanks. Ideas Matter podcast will return with the next in our Psychology and Democracy series, a lecture by Ella Whelan on D.H. Lawrence's novel, Lady Chatterley's Lover. 